Welcome, dear listener, to Fear from the Heartland. I'm your host, Paul J. McSorley. Set aside some moments now and take an adventurous ride on a journey into the psyche of some talented writers. They will dig into your being and titillate you. Oh, I love that word, titillate. While the stories may not all take place in the heartland, I am delivering them to you from the heartland. My intention is to strike fear and confusion into the mind, soul, and yes, the heart. This is Fear from the Heartland. Hello, Heartlanders, and welcome to Season 3, Episode 26 of Fear from the Heartland, the final episode of Fear from the Heartland of the season. I'm your host, Paul J. McSorley. No fear. Next week begins Season 4. Hey, Heartlanders, you guys patrons yet? Visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to join the club. You'll get ad-free versions of this and all our other podcasts, including hundreds of standalone releases from our audio archives dating back to 2012. It's a great way to show your support, and you get a whole lot for it. It's at this time I will take a moment to thank the folks that have helped make Fear from the Heartland a success. It starts with you, our dear listeners. Thank you for setting aside the time to hang out with us. Shoutouts to my lovely wife, Nikki McSorley, who does such a stellar job producing the show each and every week with original music and sound control, as well as finding the top-of-the-line artwork for the show week in and week out. Just wow, babe. N.M. Brown for her tireless work behind the scenes coordinating all the videos aired on Fear from the Heartland and Chilling Tales for Dark Nights as well. She is a rock. Thank you, my dear. Also, executive producer Craig Groshek, who has made this all possible. Last and by no means least, because without the writers submitting some of the most compelling top-line stories weekly, this show has nowhere to go. Thank you one and all. Sorry to be long-winded tonight, but as a bonus, we have two weirdly wonderful tales by Corpse Child and J.C. Fields. Let's get after it. Kissing under the mistletoe, a harmless practice, either with the one you love, or the one you wish to love, or the one you wish you could love. But what if the kiss under the mistletoe completely damns you for all time? Let's find out, shall we? And now for your indulgence, Kiss Me Neath the Mistletoe by Corpse Child. Look, darling, isn't the snow beautiful tonight? She said nothing, simply remaining stiff in the aged wooden chair. He smiled and continued to sip from his mug of hot chocolate. He found her cold, silent demeanor adorable, one of a number of things he had come to find irresistible about her. She just sat there, staring with an expression of permanent fright back at him from in front of the window. Behind her, he could see the white specks as they fell in a slow, soothing flurry. 
he looked up at the ancient grandfather clock. 11.30 p.m. He smiled and whispered to her, Now it's longer now, my sweet Delilah. He got up and made his way to the blaze in the hearth. He began pouring himself some more of the piping hot cocoa before looking back to the window, meeting gaze once more into her faded baby blue eyes. Why don't you have a mug, my love? Still, only silence served to answer his offer. He softly grunted in amusement before then closing the top of the kettle. He took another sip as he continued to watch her. God, how she looks so beautiful. Delilah, the sole warmth of his heart, sitting silent and peaceful on the old chair of antique mahogany, shrouded in the old white gown he had seen on her since first setting eyes on her. He always thought it made her look akin to the paintings of the Virgin Mary herself. God, if only he were a painter, he would sometimes think he'd create a masterpiece from this scene alone to rival Dolly or Da Vinci. If he were a writer, he'd craft a tale with more potent emotion than even Poe at his most dreary or bleak. As the snow continued to fall outside, he could feel the air in the small den area become colder, even if just ever so slightly. Why don't you come sit with me by the fire? He said as he started to stoke the blaze in the furnace until the heat from its dance upon the oak kindling returned. Still, she merely sat in her chair in front of the window. With a warm smile, he sat down his mug of hot chocolate and went over to the window. Here, he said as he began trying to push the chair from behind over to the hearth. Allow me? About two or three feet from the hearth, Delilah began to slump forward until she had fallen from her chair. Oh dear, he exclaimed chuckling. He shivered again, feeling the unnatural chill pervade the room around. Come now, Delilah, there's no need to be upset. It'll all come together soon. Fixing her back upright, he continued to push the chair the rest of the way to the hearth. Now, isn't that much better, dear? She was still as silent as ever, yet her face could say both everything and nothing at the same time. Her eyes glinted with the reflective glow of the flame's wild dance, which served to also illuminate the rest of her pale, distraught face. Even as it looked now, defined in much of its morbid detail by the flames, he still felt hopelessly entranced by her face. He checked the clock again before rummaging around in his shirt pocket. 11.40 From his shirt pocket, he produced a small wilted mistletoe. He sighed the grim cloud of reality accentuating itself to him once again. He had come to both look forward to, as well as dread this night, Christmas Eve. It wasn't quite time yet. Soon, it would all be over, but not yet. Attempting to void this cloud from his mind, he stuffed the small mistletoe back into his pocket and walked over to the table beside the window and placed one of the untitled records onto the phonograph and placed the needle onto its third track. It was one of his favorite tunes that began playing, though for his own reasons unknown, he could never remember the name of the composition or its composer. Would you care to dance to pass the time, my love? He walked over to the chair and took her soft, cold hand before shifting her to her feet. Now standing before him, the cloud of anxiety tightened its grip on him. You look beautiful, my dearest Delilah, he said with a shaking voice. He could hear her voice resonate distantly within the back of his mind, sounding as though it were echoing from the peak of a mountain. In life or in death, I will always have your heart, Arthur, and my kiss will be the sole warmth of your body, your heart, and your soul. 
Slowly, carefully, he began to shuffle around the room with her limply hanging in his arms. He tried, of course, to keep her braced upright against his chest, to no effect. In spite of this, though, he merely waltzed on with her, still smiling warmly to her. The longer he stared into those stiff, oceanic-hued irises, the more those terrible, maddening memories returned to him. Memories of that first fateful night he lost himself to the lust for his dearest Delilah. The night that would spell the beginning of his own undoing. He could almost see it now, in every exact detail, looking into her cold, frozen eyes. The long walk down the icy road, the night sky, the gas-lighted lamps that stood to sparsely pepper the white-blanketed ground with their dim glows. It was deathly cold that night, only just over a month to the day before now and he was walking alone from another evening toiling at the local market. He had made this very same walk many a night before, but this was different for him. How? He could not have then known exactly. Nevertheless, something had changed in almost supernatural manner in his mind that night. It had become very late when he saw her for the first time. There by the street lamp she stood, shrouded in a dress as white as the very snow, and oh, those eyes, those baby blues that immediately seized him and kept him spellbound. He felt a sense of tranquil warmth spread throughout his body with the image of that first shy smile she gave him when she saw him. That smile of fragile innocence and yet of a cunning nature. He saw that she was trying to hang something from the top of the post when he began to approach her. When he drew near, he could see that it was a mistletoe that she was attempting to hang the very same one he now kept in his pocket as he danced on. He hello there, he greeted. Is it not just a tad early for these? She responded with that same playfully sly grin and replied, The heart doesn't lie, and my heart tells me that the time is just right. The time for what? he asked, confused. She giggled. The time for one's heart to be warmed by a lover's kiss. He wasn't quite sure what she meant, but he somehow felt she was right. He could see she was struggling to hang the mistletoe. Here, may I? She gave him that softly sweet smile and handed him the mistletoe. He then hung it from the top of the gas-fueled street lamp. There we are, hung from where you and all others can see. Her smile widened as she chuckled. You know what they say? She asked him in a balmy, almost seductive tone. He looked to her, intrigued. The mistletoe is deadly if you eat it, but the kiss is even deadlier if you mean it. He laughed before losing himself once again into her eyes. Even as cold as it had become, he felt an extreme sense of warmth pass through him. It was as though he were next to a bonfire, and he even began to unfasten his winter garbs. Before he could do or say anything, she placed a slim, tender hand upon his chest. Instantly, a cavalcade of emotions ran down in a torrential downpour inside of him. Suddenly, all perception of the world around him was lost. He continued to lose more of himself into her eyes, those light baby blue whirlpools. What's your name? He said nothing. He could only barely perceive the sound of her voice. What is your name, sir? Still transfixed in her stare, he gibbered out, Um... Arthur, she smiled and continued to caress his chest tenderly, now working her hands up and around his neck. She looked up to the mistletoe and then back to him, her grin growing. 
Will you kiss me, Arthur? She cooed. Kiss me neath the mistletoe? His body began to act before his mind would register their actions. Slowly, he began to lean down to her, his eyes feeling heavier and heavier with each inch. Finally, their lips met, and he felt as though he was locked in an angel's embrace. She would break the union first, turning away to leave with no words except to say, I'll be waiting for you, love. He stood frozen, still spellbound. Eventually, his stupor broke, and he found himself stupefied, unaware of where he was or what had happened. In that moment, only one thing was certain. He was extremely cold. Such would remain the case for the remainder of the eve. It was that night, curled under his comforter, that he would see her face again. He would hear her voice again, the ever-so-seductive sound. Kiss me, Arthur. Kiss me neat the mistletoe. Such feverish infatuation, mixed triflingly with the deathly cold, robbed him utterly of sleep that night and well into the coming morning. And this would carry on for the rest of that week, until eventually he no longer saw her in his dreams. Her face and her voice had faded into little more than an obscure set of features and sounds he never could quite put together. That was until that Sunday evening when he was once again returning home from the market passing by that very same street lamp. And as if expectantly, there she stood again by the street lamp with mistletoe hanging from its top, shrouded in her same white gown, beckoning him to her with those eyes. And there it was again, that warmth that spread through his body, the earth that had felt entirely absent since that night for reasons he could never place. I knew you'd come, she said, bearing that same seductive smile from before. He froze, trapped once again in her stare. Absently, he began to trudge towards her. When he reached her, she once more unfastened his garbs and began caressing his chest. He could only stand and watch her, his mind completely blank. My God, Arthur, you're so cold. Her voice, while still sultry and smooth, took on an almost motherly tone when she spoke. Indeed, he felt like a child again, warmed by her preternatural touch. Let me warm you with a kiss. Again, her hands slithered up from his chest and around his neck, and he instinctively lowered himself again to meet her lips. And again did the overpowering heat inside him flare. She would break away again, and again he would be left alone by the street lamp with only a fragmented sense of recollection of what had transpired. That night, too, resulted in restlessness. That night, writhing in his bed, Arthur would dream. Dream of snow, of the gas lamp, of her beautiful eyes, her beautiful face, of the mistletoe. The mistletoe. Deadly if you eat it. Deadlier if you mean it. He could take it no more. He had to find this woman, this elusive temptress. Throwing on his heaviest winter garbs, he set out amid the bitter cold night air. The year's snowfall had begun to rain down earlier that afternoon and had by then formed into a thick white blanket upon the ground. Slowly, he staggered through the snow until he came once more upon the street lamp. His legs were unable to hold themselves up any longer and he fell to his knees in front of it, the mistletoe hanging down, jeering at him. His sight began to blur as with each fleeting labored breath. The winter air had done its damage, and now he would feel its bitter touch slowly pluck the life from him. First, he would lose any feeling he had in nearly every part of his body. Next, he would feel the ice slowly form over his eyes, shutting him out from his sight. 
Just before the vicious winter would have him, however, he began to see the vague outline of a figure gliding towards him. He, of course, couldn't distinguish any definition from the figure outside of the apparently human outline. The approaching figure almost seemed to blend with the surrounding snow. Only the long crimson hair braided around the figure's neck gave him clarity. It was her. Or was it? As the figure approached closer, he began to notice more and more details that differentiated it from the dame he so feverishly saw. This new woman, while very similar in many of her features to the other, had much more pale, almost desiccated skin. Had he still the feeling in his body, Arthur would have been sprinting for dear life. He could only lie and wait for this gruesome specter to have her way with him. He could feel his heart thunder and quake against his chest with every inch she gracefully floated across the snow. He wanted desperately to at least close his eyes, sparing himself the sight of whatever horror he would face at her whims when she finally reached him. She froze before him, staring down to him with eyes that were only a faded resemblance of the baby blue gems he had been entranced by. The specter knelt down to him and placed its pale bony index finger on his lips. To his amazement, the specter's finger wasn't cold or frigid as he would have expected from one who looked as gravely as she. Rather, he felt the wave of heat begin to pervade him again. She then seized, cupped his chin in her frail hands, and leaned in to kiss him. Instantly, all feeling returned to his limbs. He then stood up as he watched the specter turn to leave. Wait! he exclaimed. She stopped and turned her pale dead face to him once more. Who are you? She turned slowly before rushing to him in a startlingly fluid motion that was too quick for him to perceive. She was upon him again and taking him firmly by the throat, said into his ear in almost too soft a whisper, I am Delilah. I am the warmth of your heart, the blazing fire in your chest that you can never again live without. With that, she released him, and he watched her vanish far into the horizon before he could even blink. Just as before, he was left alone and bewildered, unable to remember what had just happened or why he'd even come. The only thing he was able to remember were fragments of a face, the face of a beautiful woman, as well as the face of a ghastly corpse. Along with this, Arthur could hear a soft rasping whisper swim through his mind. The voice was, of course, utterly indeterminate without any sort of identity or definition to its origin. A kiss from my lips will now and always be what keeps thy heart warm and beating, lest it submit to a cold, bitter end. That night was when his dreams of her first became vivid and clear. He saw her again, standing amid the snow, giving him that same dubious smile indicative of sinful desire. And looking upon this face, he fell helplessly into her whims and slowly walked to her, the snow began to flurry from above and he could feel the chill begin crippling him again. The temptress extended her hand and curled her finger to beckon him closer. Come, will you dance with me, Arthur? His pace quickened and his heart raced with both excitement and apprehension until eventually he broke into a sprint to her. To him, she seemed so close and at the same time so far away the further he sprinted. At last, he reached her and was promptly seized into her embrace, and like he was now in his living room with her, they waltzed about amid the white expanse. All the while, his attention was fixed to her radiant smile, augmented by those baby blue irises. Kiss me, Arthur, she crooned to him with that angelic voice. 
He closed his eyes and leaned into her with anticipation. Likewise, she would yield her lips to him and he felt the intensity of the sun burst within him. Gradually, however, he watched in growing fear as her face slowly devolved into that familiarly haunting necrotic visage that plagued his subconscious mind. Aghast, he shoved her away and attempted to flee. Something caught his feet and he fell prostrate into the snow. She was once more upon him, leering down to him with those cold, dead eyes. She knelt down and reached her hand down to him, clutching something small and frail in her withered hand. Shaking, he looked to see that it was a small mistletoe. You're so cold, Arthur, she rasped in a ghoulish hiss. Come, warm your heart with my lips, love. No, 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 go away. He exclaimed as he felt the crippling chill return, once more causing his blood to begin to freeze solid. All throughout his body, he slowly lost all sensations of touch and his eyes started to freeze over again. Her lips opened once more and she spoke. You can't deny me long. Without me, your heart, your soul will rot in a cold, icy bed. As darkness would have him, Arthur watched as the ghost, poising the mistletoe high above them, leaned forward to his right ear and whispered, I'll be waiting, love. It was in that instant that he awoke bolt upright with a frightened shriek. For a time, Arthur just sat there, gasping frantically as though he were a fish being held above the water. Eventually, he was able to regain his composure, yet he still felt wrong. It was more of an empty sensation, like he had had something removed from within him. What, how, or why, however, were questions that continued to elude him. But whatever it was, it would cause him to feel perpetually cold for many days and nights to come, regardless of what he wore or how close he would sit by the blazing hearth. One thing did slowly mold into at least a minute certainty to him. One way or another, this strange phenomena presently plaguing him was likely due to some sorcerous whim of this beautiful yet mysterious dame that dominated his subconscious mind. Unable to sleep, Arthur pondered how he may be able to rid himself of this apparently strange curse, eventually concluding that, no matter how strong his desire for her was, he would not heed her summons. Such proved to not be as easy as he had thought, however. Every day from rise until fall of the sun, the phantom chills would menace him without end. Constantly, he felt as though his blood had been turned to solid ice, despite at almost all times wearing his heaviest of garbs. Arthur would spend most of each following afternoon over those next three and a half weeks huddled next to his hearth, constantly stoking the kindling to draw more heat from it. He would only eat scalding broth and lightly prepared stews with steaming cups of tea or coffee or cocoa. In spite of all of this, still he was always so deathly cold inside and out. Eventually on the Monday of the week before now, he ran out of these commodities and was forced to venture out against the wrath of the cold. He had very little money by then, having received word early that past weekend that he had lost his job at the market due to his seclusion. Still, he had to find some way to banish the bitter cold that was crippling him. It was as he was trudging through the snowbound streets of the market that, amidst the many folks who had likewise gathered at the market that evening, his eyes fell upon her. She was standing at the bakery, her luscious crimson braided hair facing out to him hanging down her back. Almost instantly, a nauseating dread flooded through him. You need me, Arthur. 
he could hear from the deep in the pit of his subconscious. You need my lips. I can feel it. Come, Arthur. Come to the mistletoe. Come hold me and kiss me. No, no more, he screamed. Almost all eyes from the present congregation were now fixed to him, frightened and bewildered. Oblivious to the attention he had garnered, Arthur swiftly bolted to the young woman in front of the bakery, the seductress, the witch. With startling strength and intensity, he seized her by her shoulders and proceeded to violently shake her. What have you done to me? He barked to her frightened face. Her eyes were wide and afraid, welling to the brim with tears. Who, who, who are you? Though he could see the fear molded onto the young woman's face, he would not relent. What do you want from me, devil? She screamed and struggled frantically to free herself, to no use. Arthur was determined to end this madness that was robbing him of his body, mind, and his very soul. It would end there and now, even if it meant the death of him. Answer me, why have you plagued me like this? Let the lady go, demanded a nearby bystander in a gruff voice, a broad-shouldered man attired in thick animal fur garbs indicative of woodland residency. Despite his hysterical frenzy, Arthur recognized the man to be none other than McDowell, the town's lumberjack. She's a witch, Arthur exclaimed to the crowd as McDowell pried him away from the distressed woman and began dragging him out of the market square. She's afflicted me with some form of curse. Please, you must believe me. She's trying to rob me of my soul. The crowd merely looked upon him with disgust and shame. Though as he was being forcefully towed away, he thought, no. He swore he could see the young woman's shocked face twist into one of sinister exultation. His own flailing against McDowell's restraint was feeble at best, not impeding his iron grasp in the least. Finally, Arthur was cast down into the snow. Stay down, if you know what be good for you, he heard McDowell demand before turning and making his way back to the market square. Laying in the frigid snow, Arthur's mind was lost in a maelstrom that bordered on confusion, fear, and pure madness. Why is she doing this to me? What does she want from me? Why don't they believe me? Tried as he might, no answers came to him, pushing him further to the edge of complete collapse. Making the matter worse was that he felt the chill now with more potency than ever. It wasn't long before he had succumbed to the elements yet again, unconsciousness assuming full control over his mind. And the first image to assault his hollow dream was, of course, her, leering over and jeering. In life or in death, your heart will always be mine, Arthur. He desperately tried to rid her presence from his mind to no purpose. Regardless of how much he would try to banish her from thought and memory, he would be met only with her pale, dead face. No, stay away. She simply remained, curling a beckoning finger with one hand, the other holding the mistletoe aloft. Join me under the mistletoe, Arthur. Come, come. Arthur's eyes went wide as he saw his body turn to ice. All too soon was he encased in a layer of frigid, unforgiving glacier. He could only watch in perpetual terror as the spectral woman approached him. You can't elude me, Arthur, teased the specter in its rasping whisper, poising her decayed index finger at his heart. Without me, you will only crumble. 
With a light tap of her finger upon his chest, the ice splintered and started to crumble, and helpless, he could only watch horrified while he fell apart. Finally, his body had been reduced to nothing more than shards of glassy ice, only his head remaining whole. Yet even still, he was forced to watch as the specter picked up his head and, holding that damning mistletoe high above, brought her faded gray lips to meet his. Arthur awoke again with a scream. Frantically, he padded all over his body to find that he was still whole and the specter was nowhere to be found. Even still, relief wouldn't find him as he was still menaced by the chill. He could hardly move his limbs and he was profusely trembling from hypothermia. He wanted to cry, both from the crippling madness as well as bitter fear, and he no doubt would have done so had the air not been so cruel with its wintry wrath as to freeze the tears as they welled. With every minute reserve of strength he would have, Arthur found himself to his feet and began stiffly shambling to his house. It was as he crossed onto that familiar road to his house that he saw her again, walking all alone. Instantly, he could feel the urge again to rush to her and try again to force her to relieve him of whatever spell or curse she cast upon him. It was this frightful determination and this alone that seemed to fuel his stride. She didn't seem to notice him approaching. It was perfect, he thought. He could sneak upon her, ambush her, and be on his way with none the wiser. He would be rid of this curse at last. Thoughts fell in an avalanche of how he could force her to relieve him his torment. He was prepared to even do the worst if it came to it. After all, she's all alone now. It would be so easy, wouldn't it? Just a quick snap of her fragile little neck, and it'll all be over. And that was all he could care about, to finally be rid of this phantasmic witch and her damn accursed mistletoe. It wasn't long before he was then upon her. Witch? I have you now, he ejaculated venomously. When she turned to him, exposing those all-too-familiar baby blues that appeared frozen in fright, he knew he had her finally at his mercy. He knew he would finally end this madness. She quickly tried to hurry into her home and shut out her pursuer, but she was too little too late. Arthur caught the door as it was about to close on him and forced his way inside. When she tried to run to the back of the house, he caught her and rudely threw her to the floor. He was then upon her again with his hands like pythons around her throat, forcing the air from her lungs and commanding her to undo her wicked sorcery. It was, in more than one way, invigorating. He felt as though he were a wolf and she a cornered sheep. The look of utter fear in her eyes fueled him. Now he would bend her to his whim. Whatever you have done to me, witch, it ends now. I, I, I haven't. She choked out, but it was no use. Arthur's strangulation had by then rendered her speech impotent. Frantically, she claws like an animal at his face, trying to gouge his eyes. Nevertheless, Arthur's wrath was little impeded. In her wild flailing, her arm brushed the nearby drawer, knocking something off. Even amidst his primal state, he was able to see that it was a small, frail mistletoe. Mistletoe! He barked with lunatic laughter as he began forcing it down her throat deadly if you eat it. Slowly he watched the life leave her eyes. Yes, he knew he had won now. It'll all be over. Just one quick snap. He rose up triumphantly. 
the adrenaline still coursing through him. He had done it. It was over. It was all over. The witch was dead. He stopped. Suddenly, his exultation died and was replaced with another feeling. Panic. He looked down again at the woman's inert body, now with a growing panic. What have I done? He tried to shake her, desperately hoping that she may yet exhibit life. She did not, and Arthur now felt his head begin to spin. What was he to do? He killed her. He was now a murderer. The court would have him hanged for sure. He'd be condemned as a cold-blooded monster. But no, no, that wasn't what happened, was it? She was a witch, was she not? Had she not brought misery upon his life? What he did was for the good of his own soul. Wasn't it? In a brief devastating avalanche, he began to remember her eyes, those hypnotic irises so wan with fear. All at once, dregs of recrimination and despair caused him to huddle himself into a fetal position, sobbing. Arthur? He heard the voice only faintly, but enough to recognize it. Arthur? No, no, that's not possible, he stammered. All too soon then did he feel that haunting cold infect his body once more. Crippled once again, he listened in terror as the wraith's voice appeared to close in around him with its ghastly rasping hiss. In life, or in death, I have your heart. I will keep it warm with me, even in hell. It will belong to me, and me alone, forever and always. Arthur's body was trembling more violently than ever before now. No, 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 no. You're dead. As if on cue, he saw the woman's body suddenly bolt upright. Her face was now the very same as that of the specter, with her vibrant blue eyes now forever faded in death. Kiss me, Arthur. She croaked as she began crawling toward him with disjointed motion. Arthur opened his mouth, yet not a sound was able to be uttered. Only pitiful croaks of fright were sounded before she was upon him, pinning him to the wooden floor. Leering over him, she then began to open her mouth and croak as she painfully regurgitated the mistletoe onto him, now black and withered. Come, won't you kiss me, love? Before he could react, her pale, dead hands roughly seized his face and her cold lips forced their way to his. This time, the warm sensation from before was not present, only the frigid touch of death and decay. He struggled until finally throwing her off of him. She was sent hurling into the wall with a crash and she was once again motionless, lifeless. He simply laid on his back, too frightened to move in spite of his spiking adrenaline, gasping frantically for breath. When he finally looked up, he was met with her dead face, forever chiseled in perpetual fright. Reflexively, he touched his own lips, finding that they still felt as they had before, cracked and chapped as they were from exposure to the unforgiving cold. Still, he had felt her lips. Hadn't he? Arthur clutched his head and howled as he began stoving his head into the wooden floor. Please, his mind screamed. Please, merciful Lord, make it end. Eventually, he could bring himself to pound the floor no more, and that was when he crawled like an animal to the woman's battered corpse. Why are you doing this to me? This time, there was no answer. She merely stared back to him with stiff, faded eyes. He began shaking her, crying out for an answer. 
It was when he was again met with only silence that his terrified sobbing devolved into a fit of hysterical laughter. He collapsed onto his back, the corpse held firmly against him, as the laughter soon escalated into wailing cackles of raving madness that echoed throughout the house. In a morbid way, it was hilarious to him, the utter folly of it all. What began with a simple kiss had now delved into the black recesses of insanity. He was once a man respected by the people. He was a well-liked market clerk, adored by those he served. Now he was a madman, a lunatic, and now worst of all, a murderer. He carried on his demented cheer until his throat was shot and his breaths became labored. Slowly, he could feel the chill again. His mind now gone forever, broken beyond all repair, he unfastened his shirt and trousers before climbing onto her, mounting the withering mistletoe above. If it was him she wanted, she would have him. All of him. It would be days before reality would finally break through his madness. He sat that night, the eve of Christmas, staring into her dead eyes. He knew he couldn't live on like this, a prisoner to the curse of his own madness, to Delilah. The chill's grasp tightened and crippled him again. That was when it came to him of what he would have to do. He went into the basement of the house and retrieved a bucket of the kerosene meant for the lamps and set about all night dousing every inch of the house with it. Every wall, every corner, and every room was dredged, leaving none to be spared. As he toiled feverishly, her words continued to cycle incessantly and the supernatural chill amplified in its ferocity. You need my lips. I can't feel it. Come, Arthur. Come to the mistletoe. Despite this, he didn't stop until the breaking of the next sunrise when he had finally completed his task. Tonight, he swore to himself. This will all end tonight. Twelve loud chimes broke Arthur of his mad remiss. It was time. Steadily, he placed Delilah back into her chair and silenced the phonograph. He now felt more deathly cold than ever before. Still, this didn't deter him. With the last of the kerosene, he doused himself and her before stringing the mistletoe to the ceiling. He then stood her up once more, embracing her to him, before using the poker to cast out a burning log, setting the floors alight. All too quick did the flames dance consume the floors and the walls around them. Even amidst the inferno, however, Arthur still felt none of its warmth. He knew only one thing would, and it would be for the last time. Merry Christmas, Delilah, he said as he held her in an eternal embrace and brought his lips to hers. Even as the flames crept upon them, charring flesh and bone, he did not waver. He would die with his heart in eternal warmth. For even in death, she would always be the sole warmth of his heart. I hope you enjoyed tonight's tale, Kiss Me Neath the Mistletoe by Corpse Child. Corpse Child is a young person with a fascination with the art of terror and the macabre. When he's not watching horror movies or reading horror novels or stories, he's always crafting his own chilling gospels of horror to terrify and eternally rob you of a peaceful slumber. Currently, he publishes most of his work to Reddit under his pen name Corpse Child. 
Many of his horror stories have been featured and adapted to audio narrations by a wide variety of YouTube narrators, including some of the bigger names in the field, as well as the ones commissioned on the Chilling app and was featured in the debut issue of Ill-Advised Records, The Dark Door E-Zine, and now is the in-house author, artist, and founding member for Psychotoxin Press and its ongoing horror magazine, Eidetic Quarterly. Check out Corpse Child's offerings at reddit.com backslash r backslash corpsechildgospels. That's C-O-R-P-S-E-C-H-I-L-D-G-O-S-P-E-L-S. Or his website, psychotoxin.com. That's P-S-Y-C-H-O-T-O-X-I-N.com. We all have our dark sides. Sometimes they are accompanied by darker thoughts. Meet Dakota Storm, a man whose wife and toddler son were killed in a horrific car accident several years prior. When we first meet Storm, his thoughts are centered around ending the pain and grief he feels since their deaths. Just as he is about to take his own life, he is interrupted by another creature who is also in need of help an abandoned border collie whom he will name Apollo. Thus begins the process of healing for both man and beast. And now, dear listeners, may we offer for your indulgence, A Storm Does This Way Come by J.C. Fields. Fog shrouded the old suspension footbridge crossing the ravine. Visibility stretched only 20 feet in any direction, magnifying the isolation Dakota Storm already felt. The muffled sound of water rushing over rocks and boulders 75 feet below could be heard. Otherwise, the world remained silent. He felt his heart pound as he stared at the bridge whose length disappeared into the mist. His determination, built since the accident, waned as he approached the steel cabling securing the bridge's expanse. Doubts about his decision crept into his conscience. Is this what I really want? Pain and guilt consumed his every waking moment. He needed an escape, but was this the coward's way out? He did not know the answer, nor did he care. All he knew was his wife and three-year-old son were gone forever, killed in a senseless car accident caused by a drunk driver. The thought of spending another Christmas without them gave him a painful, hollow feeling. The image of his wife on their wedding day came to him as he closed his eyes. Her white dress and the crown of white statusy and lavender remained as vivid in his memory as the day she wore them. But now, two years since the incident, the image resembled a picture rather than a real person. He could only remember his son's face if he focused on a photograph. His guilt deepened as his memory faded. Grasping the steel cable, he stood still for what seemed like forever. The wooden planks under his feet darkened as dusk settled over the park. He put one foot on the bridge and heard it creak. Through the gloom created by the fog, a sound of whimpering could be heard. He stopped and concentrated on the noise. Tilting his head toward the sound, it grew in intensity. As an ex-military dog handler, he knew the tone of an injured canine. On instinct, he yelled, Where are you, boy? From the depths of the mist surrounding the bridge came a series of desperate barks. 
His original purpose for being at the bridge vanished as he rushed toward the sound of a wounded animal. Halfway across the creaky, swaying bridge, he could discern the shape of a medium-sized dog tied to one of the bridge planks. As he approached, the dog barked, then bared its teeth in a snarl. Storm steadied himself, holding on to the top cable of the bridge as it swayed from his movement. What's wrong, boy? His voice remained calm and soothing as he walked slowly toward the animal. Are you caught? Staring at the approaching man, the canine stopped barking, dipped its head and whimpered. Storm kneeled a foot away from the dog's closest reach and spoke in a gentle voice. You're a pretty one. As he spoke, he searched for the spot where the dog was tied. It appeared to be a leash or rope entangled in amongst the wooden planks of the bridge. The trapped border collie displayed the standard black and white coat. Its bright eyes revealed the full intelligence of the breed. He sat in front of the dog, crossed his legs, and started talking to the animal. What he said mattered not. Using a calm, soothing voice did. From its appearance, the dog had been trapped for a while. The hair was soaked and matted, but the ears pointed up while the tail wagged with anticipation. Storm could see a choker collar, used for training, attached to the leash. On closer inspection, it appeared to be adjusted to keep the animal from escaping. As darkness descended, he made an attempt to touch the dog. To his surprise, it allowed his hand to pat its head. The more he talked, the calmer the canine grew. Taking a leap of faith, he untangled the leash. Let's get off this bridge and get you something to eat. Without hesitation, it followed. Four hours later, with the animal fed, watered, and bathed, clumps of matted hair littered the bottom of the bathtub after trimming them while he brushed. The dog now slept on a blanket next to his bed as he searched several websites for any news of a missing border collie in the surrounding area. The search proved fruitless. Sitting back against the headboard, he watched the dog's chest rise and fall. How could anyone abandon such a beautiful creature? The dog raised its head to look at Storm, his tail occasionally thumping the floor. He knew the canine was incapable of smiling, but it sure looked like one. What am I going to call you, boy? The collie's tail thumped the floor harder. What about Apollo, the Greek god of light and healing? The speed of the thumping increased twofold. Then Apollo it is. A new thought made him smile. Maybe God put you there. Maybe he put you there to give me another chance to see the light and possibly heal. St. Louis County, Missouri. December, one year later. Dakota Storm and Apollo entered the St. Louis County Sheriff's locker room 30 minutes before the start of their shift. As he placed his civilian clothes in his locker, someone behind him yelled, Hey Storm, Cap wants to see you in his office. Turning, Storm saw his shift commander, Brad Garrett, at the end of the locker row with his hands on his hips. Why? Garrett shrugged. Don't know, but my pay grade, all he said was for you to report as soon as you arrive. Got it. Thanks, Sarge. As he maneuvered his way through the locker room, Apollo stayed on his left side in perfect step as they approached Captain Guy McBride's office. When he arrived, he noticed the captain's door open. After knocking on the frame, he remained outside the room. Looking up, McBride smiled and waved him in. Shut the door, please. Storm's first thought was, Uh-oh, what have I done now? He stood at parade rest in front of the desk waiting for whatever chewing out might follow. Relax, Storm. Have a seat. 
Complying, he lowered himself into one of the two wooden chairs in front of the ancient gray metal desk. McBride smiled, gathered the paperwork, tapped them on the surface to make a neat stack and placed it in his outbasket. He glanced at Apollo sitting to the left of Storm. The border collie panted, its eyes glued to the captain while it sat ramrod straight. Is that dog always by your side? His name is Apollo, sir. Yes, I know. You didn't answer the question. You wanted to see me, Captain? McBride chuckled. Like I said earlier, take it easy. You're not in trouble. The reason you're here is because I got an odd email this morning. Storm's posture relaxed slightly, but he kept his guard up. I take it the email concerned me? The captain nodded. The message also concerned Judy and your son. At the mention of their names, Storm stiffened again. What about them? The email was not specific, but there's an inmate at the Jefferson City Correction Center who is dying. His last wish is to talk to you about them. Who is he? Someone I arrested? A nod from McBride confirmed his statement. What's his name, Captain? Eli Burns. Do you remember him? Vaguely. Wasn't he part of a stolen car ring? Yeah, that's him. You were undercover and helped convict him. He's in the JCCC infirmary and dying from cancer. Reportedly, he only has a few days to live and wants to talk to you. Storm blinked several times. Not sure I want to talk to him. Don't blame you, but according to the warden's email this morning, he said he has information you need to know. I'm on duty for the next five days, sir. Not anymore. I want you to get out of your uniform and head to Jeff City when you're done. Am I on special assignment? As of five minutes ago. What do you think this is about, Captain? Don't know. Hopefully you'll know by the end of the day. JCCC rules did not allow canines into the facility, so Apollo stayed in the car. Being late fall with temperatures in the mid-50s, he was safe and comfortable in Storm's old Ford F-150. After showing identification as a St. Louis County deputy, he was escorted to the infirmary in a small room with one bed. The individual residing there appeared emaciated and barely alive. A male nurse attended to various tubes attached to the inmate's body. He looked up as Storm entered the room. Are you deputy Dakota Storm? A nod was his answer. The nurse touched the patient's shoulder. Eli? The man's eyes fluttered and he stared confused at the figure above him. Eli, the deputy you wanted to speak to is here. The man turned his head toward the door and saw a storm. Dull blue-gray eyes attempted to focus. The dark circles under them contrasted with the translucent skin and hairless head. The fluorescent light above the bed gave the man a ghostly appearance. With a croaky voice, he said, you storm yes he raised his right hand with great effort and waved the deputy closer approaching the man's bedside storm thought he saw a small tear trickle down the inmate's face in a voice barely above a whisper he said as you can probably tell i'm dying storm's only response was to fold his arms you already know that so i'll be brief the death of your wife and son wasn't an accident. They were killed on purpose. 
Tilting his head, Storm remained silent. The guy wasn't supposed to be drunk. He was paid to make it look like a one-vehicle accident. The world spun as Storm steadying himself with a hand on the wall next to him. What do you mean he was paid? The inmate shook his head and then a series of hacking coughs racked his body. The shock of the revelation gave Storm pause. He waited for the patient's spasms to settle down. When they did, he leaned over the bed. What do you mean he was paid? The infirmed man blinked rapidly for several seconds. Because I was asked to supply the car. The plan was for him to run your wife's vehicle off the road, make it look like a hit and run. But he had had a few drinks and fucked up. He was headed in the wrong direction when he hit her car head on. Why are you telling me this? Through gritted teeth, he said, Because you need to know the truth, and I can die in peace. I'm not a murderer, Storm. Right. There's a reason she was killed. I'm listening. It had to do with who she was. What are you talking about? She was Judy Storm. Burns shook his head. Her name wasn't Judy. The man stiffened with another bout of pain. He looked at his caregiver. The morphine is wearing off. Please. A nod from the nurse and then a syringe was inserted into the tube attached to the patient's left arm. As the chemicals flowed into the inmate's body, his demeanor changed and he relaxed. That's better. He looked at Storm. I don't know who she really was until I got here. Burns, you're not making any sense. Her name was Judy Thorne and I met her at a friend's birthday party. Her name wasn't Judy Thorne. What was it? The man shook his head. Don't know. Whose idea was it to kill her? I knew him as Gimpy. What kind of name is that? Nickname. No one used their real names in the group. He walked with a slight limp. Why was she targeted? Because she escaped. <coughs> the man shook with a coughing fit. His eyes closed as he gasped for breath. Storm looked at the nurse. It's the drugs. I have to use more each time to control his pain. Eventually, either the morphine or the cancer will kill him. Burns' eyes closed. Storm watched the man for several seconds, long before he's conscious enough to talk again. A couple of hours, maybe more. Storm returned four hours later and was once again escorted to the infirmary room where two orderlies were cleaning. When he knocked on the doorframe, one turned. Deputy Storm? Yes, where's Burns? Passed away about 30 minutes ago. Storm took the scenic route back to his home in Chesterfield, Missouri. The two-hour drive from Jefferson City gave him time to think and talk with Apollo. His conversations with the dog were more thinking-out-loud sessions than true discussions. So far, since finding the Border Collie a year earlier, it had never offered an opinion, just unwavering loyalty. Thirty minutes into the drive, Storm glanced at the canine strapped into a dog seatbelt harness in the passenger seat, its keen eyes on the road ahead. What do you think, Apollo? The dog turned its head and started panting. 
Yeah, that's what I think. I don't know if I should believe the guy or not. Apollo kept his gaze on Storm, tongue out, and panting. He displayed the same look he did the night Storm and he first met, the appearance of a smile. Storm continued, Why would someone I vaguely remember drag me to Jeff City to tell me that Judy was really someone else? Apollo tilted his head slightly, but as was his habit, did not answer the question. That's just silly. When we were dating, she showed me the house she grew up in and we drove by the elementary school she attended. I saw her high school yearbook with all the notes her friends wrote in it. She even talked about her days in college and the guys she dated. He watched the road and lapsed into silence. Ten minutes later, he said, She never talked about her parents because they died when she was young. She lived with her aunt. He stopped. You know, Apollo, she and I never visited the aunt. I wonder if she's still alive. If she is, maybe we could find her? Apollo lay on the seat, his eyes closed. After a quick glance at his canine partner, Storm returned his attention to the road. I've never been through her personal papers. Just couldn't make myself do it. There has to be information within them that would help me find the ant. Glancing at Apollo again, he noticed his companion with one eye open looking at him. Thanks for the talk, buddy. I'm not sure I buy the old man's fantasy. The canine raised his head, yawned, shifted position, and closed his eyes. With a smile, Storm chuckled. Leave it to you to remind me to get back to reality. Two Weeks Before Christmas With three years having passed since his wife and son's untimely death, Storm had not felt the need to trim his home for the holidays. Bringing the decorations into the house from the attic in the garage, he felt it time to move on and accept the fact they were gone. When he opened the first plastic tote, he almost stopped and took all of them back to the garage. Judy's favorite decorations were on the top. One of them was a music box depicting the manger scene. As tears formed in his eyes, he straightened and took a deep breath. He exhaled slowly. With renewed determination, he started arranging the items from the container around the house. To the best of his memory, he replicated how she decorated the rooms. In another storage box, he found the Christmas tree bulbs. As he rummaged around, he noticed a strange ornate jewelry container on the left side. Judy insisted each year that she and she alone would decorate the tree. Now he found something in the container he had never seen before. With trepidation, Storm lifted the box out and examined it. Apollo appeared by his side, having awoke from his morning nap. Looking up at his master, he proceeded to pant at his normal rate. Storm looked down. Should I open the box, Apollo? A small whimper came from the animal. Yeah, I think I should too. Storm studied the wooden box with intricate carvings on the top and sides. He found a latch and flipped it open. The contents amounted to a leather-bound journal. After a moment of hesitation, he lifted the book and opened it. His late wife's eloquent handwriting greeted him. My dearest Dakota, If you have found this journal, my past has caught up with me. For that I am sorry. I did not mean to fall in love with you, but did. You have made me happier than I ever thought possible. Plus, I was almost able to forget where I came from. I am currently pregnant with our son and hope the three of us can live in peace forever. But sometimes, the gods do not allow past transgressions to go unpunished. Within the pages of this journal, I have recorded information you will need to keep yourself and our son safe. I know I should have told you the truth from the beginning, 
but if you had known the facts, you would have walked away. Call it selfish, but I could not take the chance of losing you. Take care of yourself and our son, knowing my love for you will never die. Judy. Storm read the passage with disbelief the first time and grudging acceptance by the third. He sat cross-legged on the floor next to the plastic tote. As he looked up from the journal, Apollo laid his head on his knee. His eyes seemed filled with sorrow, reflecting his owner's feelings. Placing a hand on the dog's head, he whispered, Holy shit, Apollo. Storm rapped on Shift Commander Garrett's doorframe. Garrett waved him in. What's on your mind, Storm? The deputy handed the man the journal. I found this in some of Judy's personal things I had not gone through. The sergeant hesitated to accept the book. Uh, not sure that's any of my business, Dakota. In reality, it is, Sergeant. It outlines the structure of a criminal enterprise working out of both St. Louis and Memphis. The connections stretch all the way to Biloxi, Mississippi and New Orleans on the coast. Taking the journal in his hand, Garrett thumbed through the pages. Drugs? Yes, plus illegal guns and sex trafficking. Focusing on Storm, Garrett asked, Was Judy... No, sir. According to the journal, she escaped their clutches in her late teens and managed to start a new life. Setting the book down, Garrett said, Was she killed because she escaped? Storm shrugged. I don't know. That's my assumption. Pulling his arms, the sergeant tilted his head. Let me guess. You want to investigate all this? No, sir. Then why bring it to me? I'm requesting vacation time. To investigate it? No, to clear Judy's name. Same thing. Not really. He paused. Besides, I haven't used any of my vacation since the accident. I've got five weeks built up and believe it's time to take it. Garrett grew quiet as he focused on the tall man standing in front of his desk. All right, Storm. Vacation granted. Thank you. The deputy retrieved the journal and turned to go. Just before he exited the office, Garrett said, Dakota, if you run into trouble, call me. Turning, Storm gave the man a sad smile. Thanks, Brad. Two days later, Memphis, Tennessee. Christmas lights lit the night skyline of Memphis as Storm drove through the downtown area. Apollo sat next to him taking in the cheerful decorations. His destination? The industrial part of town between the airport and the Burlington Northern Santa Fe rail yards north of East Shelby Drive. According to Judy's journal, the warehouse he sought could be found on Malone Drive. Storm wore black jeans, long sleeve black layered insulated shirt, black New Balance athletic shoes, and a rolled up black balaclava. Apollo's white sections of his coat were dyed black with a canine safe coloring dye. The two would be invisible in the darkened recesses of the area they sought. Consulting the GPS unit on his phone, the vacationing deputy drove by the location looking for any signs of guards or security cameras. He saw no indication of physical sentries, but he did note the presence of numerous surveillance devices. Parking his Ford F-150 half a mile from the warehouse, Storm rolled down his balaclava. With his face covered, he grabbed his black backpack and exited the truck with Apollo hot on his heels. Keeping to the shadows far from the lights of the area, it took them 20 minutes to reach the rear entrance of the building. Remaining in the shadows, 
He extracted an exotic-looking gun from his backpack and aimed it at the security camera covering the rear entrance to the warehouse. The red paintball bullet splattered on the lens, effectively blinding it. He adjusted his aim and fired at another one. With both cameras disabled, he ran to the back door. Testing the knob, he determined it would be faster to use a crowbar. Not subtle, but effective. Fifteen seconds later, he and Apollo entered the building through the now-open door. Kneeling beside the dog, he made a circling motion with his index finger and the canine took off into the interior of the structure. Visibility within the building came from numerous security lights. Before he could start his search, he heard Apollo yelp once. Storm rushed in the direction of the sound. He found the dog sniffing at a door that appeared to be the entrance to a separate section of the warehouse. Placing his ear against the door, he heard female voices pleading for help. By means of the same crowbar used on the back entrance, he jimmied the door open and was greeted to the sight of ten young girls. All appeared terrified. One brave soul asked, Who are you? Are you all okay? The same woman said, Do we look okay? We're in a warehouse in the middle of who knows where with no food or water. How do you think we are? Abandoning his plans to search the warehouse, Storm said, If you want out, ask your questions later. Right now, follow me. He turned and used his flashlight to guide the ten girls out of the building. Thirty minutes later, police cars, ambulances, and fire trucks gathered around the warehouse. Female police officers attended to the young girls, who Storm learned ranged in age from 14 to 18. All were runaways from Mississippi and Louisiana. A sergeant with the Memphis Police Department stood in front of Storm. Wow, we appreciate your help with finding and freeing these young ladies. What the hell were you doing in there? Following a tip, he showed the officer a St. Louis County Deputy Sheriff ID. You could have come to us first. I could have, but I didn't. I don't need to remind you about the number of laws you broke with your illegal entry into the building. No, you don't. But are you missing the fact that ten underage females were being held against their will inside? Did you also fail to recognize that they are probably part of a sex trafficking ring that extends from New Orleans to St. Louis? The tall officer looked at the group of girls and then back at Storm. He offered his hand. George Stevens. As Storm shook it, he said, Dakota Storm. He pointed to the border collie sitting next to him. That's Apollo. He's a certified canine officer. Okay, Storm. How did you learn about this? From an informant before they killed her. I have her notes. Stevens sighed. We knew something was off about this warehouse, but never could obtain enough evidence to get a search warrant. Storm did not answer. Another Memphis police officer walked up to Stevens and whispered in his ear. The sergeant's expression changed immediately and he said, You're not free to go yet, Storm. Stay put. I have something I need to take care of. He hurried away following the other policeman. Turning to Apollo, Storm scratched its head and said, Good find, buddy. The dog looked up, tongue out, and panting, seemed to smile. After a few minutes, Storm lowered the tailgate on his pickup. Apollo jumped up and lay next to where the St. Louis deputy sat with his legs dangling. The young woman from the group of ten girls who had spoken to him earlier walked up. They tell me you're a police officer. With a nod, Storm said, My name's Dakota. What's yours? The young woman looked around and then refocused on him. 
They call me Angel. Yeah, but what's your real name? Isabel? Well, Isabel, it's nice to meet you. I want to thank you for getting us out of there. Storm shrugged. Glad I could help. She clutched the blanket someone had given her tighter around herself. We're not the only ones, you know. Raising an eyebrow, the deputy remained silent. This place is an overnight stop for us girls. We would have been moved again in the morning. How do you know that? That's what we were told. Those shitheads didn't even give us food or water. After closing his eyes and shaking his head slightly, Storm asked, Who brought you here? The girl took a deep breath and blew it out. Tall, bald guy said his name was Billy. I didn't believe him. Who would use your real name in this kind of a situation? She took another breath. Before he locked us in the room, he said he'd be right back with bottled water and burgers. Asshole never returned. Did you know where you were headed? She shook her head. Who are these girls, Isabel? Mostly runaways. Two of us aged out of the foster care system with nowhere to go. What about relatives? Most of us don't have any or they've disowned us. How old are you, Isabel? Old enough. Storm folded his arms and focused on the young woman. The silence lasted for an uncomfortable length of time. Finally, she said, 18. What happened to your parents? I've never met my father. My mother's in prison somewhere in Louisiana. I'm sorry. She shrugged. Not your fault. What about your last foster care parents? After a chuckle, she said, they didn't give a shit. Once the state stopped paying them, they kicked me out. Stevens returned to the pickup. Well, Storm, you uncovered a hornet's nest here. How so? There are enough stolen guns in there to arm a division. We also found a body. Raising an eyebrow, Storm remained silent. Looks like someone killed him execution style. Bullet to the back of the head and he's face down on a concrete floor. Isabel asked, What's he look like? Bald and tall's all I can tell you at the moment. Now I know why he never came back with the food. With a frown, Stevens looked at the girl and then Storm. The deputy said, She just told me someone matching your description brought them here. He was also supposed to bring them food and water. Folding his arms, the police sergeant stared at her for a few moments. Can you identify him? Yeah, if you want me to. Follow me. Turn to Storm. You stay here. Don't leave. By mid-morning, Storm and Apollo were still waiting by the Ford F-150 for Stevens to release them. Noting he wasn't under arrest kept him from being too worried. Apollo, after consuming the contents of Storm's last water bottle, remained quiet lying next to him on the truck tailgate. The girls were on their way to a clinic. Those under 18 would be transferred to a facility for homeless children. Isabel and another 18-year-old girl would then be taken to a shelter for battered females. Apollo raised his head and stared at the Memphis police sergeant as he approached. You're free to go, Storm. Sliding off the tailgate, the St. Louis County deputy asked, What changed your mind? I talked to your commanding officer. Storm remained quiet. He informed me you are one hell of a good deputy and you were in St. Louis yesterday until 6 p.m. With a slight pause, Stevens smiled. 
The medical examiner thinks the bald guy died around 6.30 last night. What about the girls? They're safe. Looking back at the warehouse, Stevens continued. There are signs throughout the building this is a regular stop for human trafficking. While we knew about it, it's been off our radar for a few months. We appreciate you exposing it for what it was. Any idea who owns the place? A local investment company. The building is handled by a property management service who leased it to a manufacturer out of New Orleans. He chuckled. <laughs> the outfit in New Orleans has no record of leasing the building. How's the rent paid? Whoever rented the building paid cash up front for a year. In other words, a dead end. Appears that way. He paused, stroked his chin, and then took a breath. Uh, we found some disturbing evidence in another section of the place. Let me guess. Drugs. Stevens shook his head. Blood on the floor of a different storage room. We aren't sure what it means, but the forensic guys are telling me it's from five different individuals. At 15 minutes before 9 p.m., Storm and Apollo were situated in a motel on the city's south side. While he studied his wife's journal, Apollo slept on the floor next to him. Without warning, the border collie's head snapped erect and his ears straightened. Storm heard a growl building deep within the dog's throat. He reached over to the bed and extracted his personal automatic pistol, a Sig Sauer P226, from his backpack. Apollo stood and approached the door, sniffing the sill. He then started barking furiously. Stepping over to a wall next to the room's window, Storm moved the curtain so he could peek out. Two men stood there, their faces covered with ski masks and holding pistols. They both pointed their gun at the door. Storm whistled and Apollo ran to his side just as the two men started firing into the door of his hotel room. The larger of the two raised his foot and slammed it against the door which flew open. As the intruder rushed into the room, Storm fired his Sig Sauer twice. The man collapsed on the floor. Blood immediately started seeping into the carpet. The only sound the deputy heard was footfalls of someone running off into the darkened hotel parking lot. Memphis Police Sergeant George Stevens examined the body lying in the entrance to the hotel room. He looked up at Storm. I know this guy. He's been the topic of many conversations during our morning briefings. I seriously doubt anyone will miss him. Standing, Stevens examined the bullet holes in the door. Looks like they were pointing down. Storm nodded. Apollo was at the door barking. Glad they missed. So am I. Okay, Storm, why'd they come after you? I have no clue, Sergeant. He folded his arms. My question is, how did they know where I was staying? I didn't even make the decision to stay here until I drove past it. Apparently, they know you're the one who found the girls. Probably found you here from the warehouse. He watched the medical examiner technicians load the dead man onto a gurney. We have positive ID on the body we found there. Who was he? William Mallard. Isabel told me he wanted to be called Billy. There you go. He's from New Orleans, and one of the NOPD detectives told me he's knee-deep in the smuggling trade there. He also expressed relief he was now my problem. Storm tilted his head. Why are you telling me all of this, Sergeant? Because we didn't know any of this 24 hours ago until you showed up. Now I've got two dead thugs and ten homeless teenage girls. Better than ten dead ones. Stevens looked over his glasses at Storm. There is that. He paused. Why is it? 
all this happens after you start snooping around. Walking over to the desk in the hotel room, Storm picked up the journal and tossed it to Stevens. Because I found that. Catching the object, Stevens flipped through it. It's a book, so? Are you going to arrest me? The sergeant shook his head. No, Storm, you seem to know more about this situation than anyone. I'd like to get your help. Pointing at the book, the deputy said, My wife and son were killed in a head-on collision three years ago. He then told Stevens about the prisoner who confessed to orchestrating the accident on his deathbed. I found the journal with some Christmas ornaments I had not touched for years. It outlines the criminal organization William Mallard belonged to. The sex trafficking has been going on for at least a decade or longer. It tells how my wife escaped and started a new life. These guys chose to punish her because they thought she'd talk. She never told anyone about her experiences, except in the journal. I'd like for her words to help shut these assholes down. Stevens skimmed over several pages, shut the book, and handed it back to Storm. Like I said, my department is requesting your help. I'd have to clear it with my commander. That's already in the works. My boss will be talking to yours sometime today. The ringing of Storm's cell phone interrupted the discussion. Just a second, Sergeant. Pressing the accept call icon, the deputy said, This is Storm. Dakota, it's Carter. What's up? Storm could hear emergency vehicles' sirens spooling down and the din of men shouting above a roar in the background. We got called by a fire. It's your house, man. Silence filled the hotel room as Storm stared at a wall. How bad? Looks to be fully engulfed, but I'm just a county deputy, not a firefighter. Glancing at his watch, Storm did the math in his head. I'm four hours away. I'll leave right now. After ending the call, he looked at Stevens. My house is on fire. I've got to go back to St. Louis. Give me your cell number and I'll talk to my commander while I'm there. Dakota, you're probably guessing this gang set it on fire. Yeah, I wouldn't want to bet against it. Going on close to 30 hours without sleep, except for a quick nap during the afternoon, Storm headed north on I-55. The time approached 2 a.m. as he passed the last exit for Sykeston, Missouri. At this time of night, traffic on the divided highway could only be described as non-existent. So when he noticed a pair of headlights rapidly approaching from behind, he paid attention. He lifted the lid for the center console of the F-150 and extracted his Sig Sauer. Heads up, Apollo. The dog, having fallen asleep on the back seat, jumped into the front on the passenger side, his attention on the back window. Storm mumbled. This could be nothing, but let's not take chances. The headlights approached rapidly and appeared to almost collide with the back of the pickup. Just as fast, it swung to their left trying to pass. Slamming on the brakes, the F-150 skidded as a larger vehicle sped past. Storm heard a loud crack as a starburst pattern formed on the far right side of the windshield. The other truck accelerated and disappeared into the night. Looking at Apollo, who appeared unharmed, he said, You okay, boy? The dog just panted and looked at Storm. Good. He pulled the truck over to the shoulder and parked. Consulting his cell phone, he looked for an alternate route north. We need to find a less obvious way home. Five hours after leaving the hotel in Memphis, Storm pulled up to his now burned out house. The deputy who called him earlier stood next to a squad car talking to a fireman. 
One fire engine remained on the scene and yellow crime scene tape roped off the perimeter of what remained of his home. Storm walked up to the two men, Apollo close to his right heel. As he and Carter shook hands, Storm said, Looks like this was a tough one to put out. Carter nodded. Dakota, this Jake Riley, he's fire marshal. Two men shook and Storm asked, Where did it start? We think we've identified three accelerant locations all on the rear of the house. By the time the first engine got here, the back half of the house was fully engulfed. The house was lost before we even started fighting it. So it was arson. Rather aggressive arson, if you ask me. No effort to make it look like an accident. Taking a deep breath, Storm blew it out as he gazed over the charred remains of the house he and his wife purchased five years earlier. Placing his hand on his friend's shoulder, Carter said, The captain's aware of what's happened. He asked me to tell you anything you need, just let him know. I appreciate that. After a short pause, he turned to the fireman. How long before I can access the site? My team will have to search it first, but I'd say we can give you access sometime late today. With a nod, Storm returned to his pickup. Allowing the dog to jump into the Ford before he got behind the wheel, he said, Now I'm pissed, Apollo. Let's find these guys and shut them down. Four days later. Negotiating with the insurance company about his house and replacing his old pickup for a different vehicle took most of the week. Storm found a used Ford Police Interceptor utility vehicle available at a local Ford dealership. Being the police version of a Ford Explorer, he traded the F-150 for the SUV. With a more powerful engine than a civilian Explorer, he would be able to outrun another highway incident. The vehicle also gave him another advantage. He knew how to maneuver it, having driven one as a deputy. On day four, he met with Captain Guy McBride. Are you going to rebuild the house? Storm shook his head. Nah, a real estate company has the lot for sale and I'll use the insurance money to buy somewhere else. I'm sure this happened, Dakota. Sir, I have reason to believe the individuals who burned my house are also the ones who killed Judy and Todd. Hmm. It's personal now. Not a good combination, Dakota. As a friend, I'd advise against pursuing this vendetta. What would you do? McBride remained silent for a long time. Finally, he shook his head. Probably the same thing. What can I do to help? Authorize me to be on loan to the Memphis Police Department. Do you plan to come back? I plan to, but... You're a good officer, Storm. I'd hate to lose you. If I don't help stop these guys, they'll eventually succeed in shutting me up. So, you'd be assisting my return to St. Louis. Southwest of Memphis Utilizing information provided by Judy's journal, Storm staked out an old rundown motel just outside of Tunica, Mississippi. According to the missive, the location served as a way station for transporting sex workers who worked the Tunica casinos. Sitting in his Explorer with Apollo in the seat next to him, he watched the comings and goings of the area surrounding the inn. Hidden in the parking lot of a strip mall across from the building, he concentrated on a van parked at the northern end of the structure. The van possessed a Louisiana license plate, plus the windows were heavily tinted, preventing observation of the passengers. At exactly 9.40 p.m., four young females entered the van and a burly man got behind the wheel. It pulled out and headed west toward the casinos. Storm picked up his radio and said, 
Target is traveling west on 713 toward Casino Strip Resort Boulevard. 10-4, we see it. Roger that. Storm noticed another car pull out of the motel parking lot and follow the van. From what he could see, two men sat in the front of the vehicle. White Toyota Camry with two men following van. 10-4, there was a pause. Got it. Keep an eye on your location. Notify if needed. Roger that. Putting the Explorer in gear, he eased the vehicle out of the parking slot and headed toward the motel to see if he could detect any additional activity. Just before he exited the mall parking lot, his radio went active. Shots fired! Shots fired! Officer down! Without hesitation, Storm accelerated the vehicle in the direction the van and Camry traveled. Coming up on the scene, Storm saw two men on the ground next to the Camry and another by the van with two officers administering first aid. The four females faced the van, their hands above their heads against the vehicle, a police officer behind them. He screeched the SUV to a halt and jumped out. Apollo followed, hot on his heels. Sergeant Stevens, who kept an eye on the girls, pointed toward a vacant field. The van driver took off on foot. See if you and Apollo can find him. Yanking his badge attached to a lanyard out from under his sweatshirt, he gripped his Sig Sauer and took off into the open field, Apollo sprinting out in front of him. The dog stopped and sniffed the ground for a few seconds. He then took off at a hard run heading toward Storm's left. With a waxing gibbous moon in the eastern sky, Storm was able to follow Apollo fairly easily. As the canine neared a grove of trees, he slowed and looked back at Storm. Catching up with the dog, the deputy kneeled beside him. Where is he, Apollo? Taking off again, Storm followed his partner. After the dog rushed into the grove, the deputy heard a man curse as he exited the cover of trees at a run. Apollo, doing what the breed had been bred to do for hundreds of years in Scotland, basically herded the man out of the trees. He could be seen constantly nipping at the fugitive's heels and then backing off. Suppressing a chuckle, Storm took a weaver's stance and yelled, Halt! Let me see your hands! The man looked at Storm and then the dog. He stopped running, shook his head, and raised his arms. As he approached the fugitive, the deputy said, On your knees, hands behind your head. Looking up, he said, you're Dakota Storm. Ignoring the statement, the deputy placed handcuffs on the man's wrists and swung his arms behind him. The prisoner continued, Did you know you're a dead man walking storm? Memphis. George Stevens approached the desk currently occupied by Dakota Storm with two cups of coffee in his hands. He set one in front of Storm and then settled into a chair at the desk next to his new friend. Tomorrow's Christmas, Dakota. Taking his attention away from the computer screen, he looked at Stevens. Thanks for the coffee. Yeah, I know. Any plans? After taking a sip from the paper cup, Storm shook his head. Not really. If the weather holds, I thought I'd take Apollo somewhere and let him run. Why? Stevens just nodded as he sipped coffee. The wife and I are having a few friends over for dinner. Would you like to join us? I wouldn't want to intrude. Nonsense. Swing on by round one. I'm deep frying a turkey. Storm nodded. Thanks. Sounds good. Have you spoken to Jacob Gordon yet? Not today. Why? He's been asking questions about you. Seems he's some kind of big shot within the U.S. Marshal Service. No, he hasn't talked to me other than when I turned the van driver over to him. With a chuckle, Stephen stood. <laughs> I meant to tell you nice work bringing him in so fast. Apollo deserves the credit. 
Yeah, well, nice work anyway. Five minutes later, Storm's coffee, now cold, needed a warm-up. As he stood, he saw Jacob Gordon making a beeline toward his desk. After the two men shook hands, Gordon said, I understand you recently lost your house in a fire? Yes, I did. What are your plans on where to live? Since I'm here in Memphis, that hasn't been a problem yet. Gordon nodded. Nice work bringing the van driver in so quickly. Thanks, Apollo did all the heavy lifting. Standing two inches taller than Storm, the man folded his arms. Ever thought about applying to the U.S. Marshal Service? When I got out of the military, I did, but my late wife was pregnant at the time and didn't want me away from home, so I took a job with the St. Louis County Sheriff's Department. Sorry about your loss, Storm. He paused. You were dog handler in the military, right? Yes, sir. Actually, I was a trainer at Lakeland Air Force Base in Texas. Gordon nodded. I read that. I've been authorized to offer you a chance to become a U.S. Deputy Marshal. Are you interested? Doing what, sir? What you did the other day, tracking down fugitives and bringing them in. What about Apollo? Gordon smiled. I wouldn't want to break up a winning team. Can I think about it? Sure. Let me know after Christmas. Christmas Day. Germantown, Tennessee. Arriving an hour late at George Stevens' house more than likely saved Dakota Storm's life. Approaching the residence in a nice neighborhood of Germantown, the presence of police and EMT vehicles caused his stomach to clinch. After parking on the street, he clipped his badge on his belt and opened the door. Turning to Apollo, he said, Stay. The dog relaxed and remained in the passenger seat. Rushing across the street, he ducked under yellow tape and immediately went to an officer keeping attendance of who entered the scene. Showing his badge, Storm told the man his name. The policeman wrote it down and said, U.S. Marshal Gordon wants to see you. He's in the back. With a nod, Storm sprinted around the house. When he rounded the corner, he saw Gordon talking to several uniformed officers. As he approached their location, Gordon broke away from the group and met Storm. Glad you're here. What happened? Stevens was out here tending to a turkey in a fryer when five men in ski masks confronted him. They forced him inside. Is he dead? No, but his wife and three of his guests are. He's critically wounded, but was able to tell first responders what happened. I was supposed to be here at one. Best you weren't. Where's Apollo? In my SUV. Get him. Storm let Apollo sniff around where the turkey fryer had been. When the dog stopped and looked at his partner, he sat. His signal, he had a scent. When the deputy made a circling motion with his hand, the dog took off toward the northwest, its nose close to the ground. Following his partner, Storm could tell the canine had a strong trail to follow. He did not deviate from his tracking, nor did he stop and sniff the air. He kept his nose to the ground and forged ahead. Located in a relatively new neighborhood, numerous vacant lots surrounded George Stevens' home. When Apollo stopped at the curb of a cul-de-sac, he raised his nose and sniffed the air. Catching up to the dog, Storm surveyed the few homes in the area. On one across from where he stood, he saw what he needed. Christmas Evening Jacob Gordon stood in front of the members of the task force in the briefing room. He said, The hospital reports George Stevens is in critical condition. Prognosis is not good. Surveying the room, he continued, 
Deputy Storm located a ring camera image of the attackers. He touched a button on an open laptop and an image on the screen behind him appeared. This is a still shot of the vehicle the men arrived in. Note there is a clear shot of a license plate. Deputy Storm was able to trace it to the Avis rental kiosk at the Memphis airport. He touched the mouse again. Another image appeared. This is a photograph from the Louisiana Office of Motor Vehicles. Meet the individual who rented the SUV identified in the picture. His name is Frank Jackson, a.k.a. Gimpy. The vehicle was returned to the airport and at this moment is being processed by an FBI forensic team. The picture showed a dark-haired male in his mid-30s. A hand shot up in the back of the room. Gordon pointed at the man. Yeah, Bob. We found that name registered at the motel where the girls were found. Looking at the image on the wall, Gordon took a breath. Ladies and gentlemen, this might be our first break. He turned back to the group. Let's find out everything we can about our Mr. Frank Jackson. Storm parked his car outside the door to his hotel room. He turned to Apollo and held up the sack from a local Chinese carryout. I know it's not a fancy Christmas meal, boy, but there's not much open tonight. Apollo sat and panted. Suddenly, the dog's ears perked up, and he stared out the rear driver's side passenger window. Dropping the sack, Storm grabbed his Sig Sauer he now kept within easy reach and ducked below the window. Just as he did this, the driver's window shattered as he pushed the door open. A shadow drew his attention and he fired the 9mm pistol. Apollo dove out and chased after the shadow. Rolling on the driveway, he jumped up and took off in pursuit of Apollo and the assailant. A shot sounded and he felt the bullet whiz by his ear. Adrenaline pushed him forward with the need to protect Apollo at all costs. The sound of the dog catching the running man came to his ears as he closed the distance. He heard Apollo growl and the man curse. A streetlight illuminated the scene before him. The suspect stood with the pistol aimed at the canine. When he saw the deputy running toward him, he raised his weapon. Storm fired just as the assailant's gun went off. Midnight. Jacob Gordon leaned against the doorframe of the hospital treatment room, a smile on his face. Well, Dakota, looks like you're gonna live. A sad smile came to Storm's face. How's Apollo doing? Fit as a fiddle. Good, where is he? He had a gash on his rib cage, which the vet said probably came from Frank Jackson's pistol. He's resting comfortably at the vet's office. How'd you find a vet this late? I'm with the U.S. Marshal Service. We take care of our team. He paused. How's the shoulder feeling? Other than a bullet passing through muscle, stiff. He paused. Where's Jackson? After being patched up by EMTs, they transferred him to the FBI office here in Memphis. He's singing like a bird. Apparently, once they explained to him how he was being charged with the murder of a police officer and three others, he found religion. Good. He told me he thought you were going to pull the trigger any second while you waited for backup. The thought crossed my mind. The deputy paused. I heard you say Jackson goes by the name Gimpy. Yeah. An informant told me he was the man who ordered my wife and son's murder. A frown crossed the marshal's face. You have any evidence? No, just the word of a dying man. Storm took a breath and let it out slowly. Any news about Stevens? Yeah, he didn't make it. Sorry, Dakota. He was a good man. Yes, he was. 
The marshal paused. Did you have a chance to think over my offer? Storm nodded. And? As long as it's a package deal with Apollo included, I'm on board. Gordon chuckled. <laughs> Wouldn't have it any other way. Hope you enjoyed tonight's story, A Storm Does This Way Come, penned by J.C. Fields. J.C. Fields is an award-winning and Amazon best-selling author. He is a full member of the Missouri Writers Guild and is active in numerous other writing groups. His Sean Kruger series has won numerous awards, including multiple gold and silver medals in the Reader's Favorite International Book Contest, The Imposter's Trail, was awarded Best Mystery Thriller at the 2017 Ozark Indie Book Fest. In March of 2020, his novel, A Lone Wolf, became a number one Amazon best-selling audiobook. His second novel in the series, The Last Insurgent, became a number one Amazon new release in January 2021. All of the aforementioned books can be found on audible.com, narrated by yours truly. If you'd like to learn more about J.C. Fields, you can reach out to him at jcfieldsbooks.com. That's J-C-F-I-E-L-D-S-B-O-O-K-S.com or bookbub.com slash authors slash j-c-fields. You can also reach him at facebook.com slash jcfieldsbooks. If you enjoyed tonight's story, hosted by yours truly, Paul J. McSorley, you can search my name on Chilling Tales for Dark Nights on YouTube for additional previous stories. If you'd like to hear more lengthy tales, be sure to take a look at my audiobooks. Available now on audible.com or just visit paulsbooks.net. That's P-A-U-L-S-B-O-O-K-S dot net. You can also find me personally on Facebook and Twitter. And with that, listeners, our weekly journey into the psyche has just about come to a close. But before we go, I'd like to take a moment to thank you for joining us for tonight's episode and remind you to take a moment to stop by our iTunes page and leave Chilling Tales for Dark Nights a five-star review and a kind word. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram if you haven't already. And while you're at it, please remember to stop by our Apple Podcast page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts and subscribe. The charts are based on subscriptions, not listens. So if you haven't subscribed yet, I'd really appreciate it. I'm your host for Fear from the Heartland, Paul J. McSorley. I've enjoyed the titillation tonight. Ooh, there's that word again. Thank you for joining me. Hope to see you again next week at Fear from the Heartland.